the digital transition. Digital Transition, brought to you by Fulton Trotter Digital, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number nine. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm chatting with HOK's James Vanderzan. Today we're going to discuss the BIM processes that have been developed in North America and the impact this has had on a global level. We'll also discuss the current state of BIM in the USA and the level of adoption by clients. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, James. Thanks for inviting me. Great to catch up with you, Nathan. So firstly, James, and now you're a big star in in the BIM world and in North America, and I actually feel grateful for actually you spending some time with me today. Now, for those that aren't aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm actually an architect, still maintained as a a registered architect here in uh, my native home of New York. Uh, my day job is chief, as chief technology officer for HOK. We're a global design and planning and consulting firm. Um, I also volunteer a significant amount of my time as the chair of the uh, U.S. chapter of Building Smart International. Uh, our name is BIM Forum. Um, I would, I've been into BIM uh, and technology since about 2001, 2002. Uh, fun fact, my actual second, pro- second BIM project I ever worked on was the Freedom Tower here in New York, uh, also known as, as One World Trade Center. So we, we don't we don't go in small for anything. A um, couple of uh, one little aspect of I think what I like to do is I consider myself a standards and contracts wonk. Um, I think I've read just about every BIM standard there is out in the industry uh, over the past ten years or so. Um, and little known fact about me, if those of you, my friends know that I was actually a professional DJ for many, many years, um, overlapped my early architecture career. So I can scratch it up on the one and twos, believe it or not. I think that's something why we get along so well. <laughs> now, that's that's one of those things that I think that's really exciting in the sense of your role in your career. Now, one of the things that I'm always envious about is is your role as a chief technical officer, which means that you must get to play with some exciting stuff and you know and test some exciting stuff, which is something that you can investigate ways from which your business can grow and be more efficient. But at the same time, what it enables you to do is find ways in which you can use technology to uh, provide greater value for your clients. HOK is a very large architectural and engineering practice, and I know that. As a business, you provide a, a very diverse range of services across the globe uh, for all your clients. The problem is, is you could sit there and talk about that for half an hour in itself. So what I want to do is just narrow my question down around HOK. And, and I guess I want to ra- narrow it down in and around regards to sp- things specific to, to BIM. You know, your role is quite diverse in the sense that it's just focusing on the technology side of it. What services do HOK provide to support clients on their digital journey? Really good question, and I think I would start off by saying that uh, our firm, as a whole, focuses more on serving clients, uh, not necessarily on serving projects. Yeah. So that's a really part of a clear part of our DNA. That, um, for example, sometimes we might engage a client, and 
to convince them that they really don't need a new building, for example, that they might be able to renovate their existing facilities in a more efficient way than, than building a new building. And the same holds true for the BIM services that, as you say, supporting them on their digital journey. We don't necessarily have a you know black and white level of BIM services that we offer to a client. And what I mean by that is um, HOK, we, we've set up the firm to be early adopters of not just BIM, but other related technologies. And what we try to do is get ahead of any industry trends or any kind of coming potential client requirements. So one example of that is we created a program we called BIM Certified. It was labeled after the, uh, and we'll, I think we're going to talk about this later, the, the National BIM Standard um, had a, a measurement of, of BIM, essentially a capability uh, maturity measurement. Yep. Um, and they had different levels, kind of like your sustainability system, like such as LEED, where you have certified silver, platinum, gold, so on. Uh, early on, I think this was about 20, 2010, 2011, we created this, this notion of BIM certified, which was beyond using a tool like Revit, what other BIM uses should be considered mainstream or basic services just, you know, that go with any project that we do. So we set up a, a series of BIM uses, design authoring, programming validation, sustainable design analysis, and 3D coordination were the key BIM uses that we put into our own internal BIM certified approach. And that's that's held true for you know whether the client has any BIM requirements or not. Very rarely, quite honestly, do we see clients that ask us to provide just BIM services. We do, but we don't really offer that up as a separate line of service. You know, we're primarily a design and consulting and planning and engineering firm. But if any, if the client, if, if making the client happy means they we want, uh, they want us to develop BIM standards for them. For example, we've done that on unlimited occasions. So essentially, what you're doing is is finding ways in which you can add value to a client's needs and then right. essentially why you should be engaged in the first place, which the reality of it is, is that that's what uh, most people should expect from an architectural firm. And I know that that's something that uh, we also have in high esteem at Fulton Trotter in the way that we work. So it's a very important point that you make in terms of the reason why uh, working with architects can, can bring greater value, not only just in responding to a brief and, you know, covering the point that you make also about, you know, not just, building a building for a building's sake. It's about finding the most effective way in which we can deliver a project for a client. And then I guess the second point from that that I like to take that I think is really important is that one BIM doesn't fit all and you'll only use what you need to to actually maximise the value for a client, which I think is also an important consideration for clients when they're considering uh, their digital journey. It's not just doing BIM for BIM's sake. It's about coming up with a solution that actually addresses a need or a risk assessment or something like that. Now, many yeah. of the BIM standards from around the globe have been developed off the back of a lot of the work that started in North America. Here in Australia, our very own NatSpec BIM management plan was based off the Penn State Guide. And the scary thing, you know, or something you can be very proud of, James, is the fact that nearly everyone in Australia here in industry all refer to BIM Forum's LOD document as part of their deliverables. You touched on briefly how your role is is the chair of the the u.s chapter of building smart and how it's actually called uh, bim forum in terms of its name what is the role that bim forum plays in 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 north america bim forum actually spun out of the uh associated general contractors of america so that's the uh group that that's organizing around the builders um 
Pagan, I think it was 2005 or 2006, they had, uh, everybody was riding the early wave of, of this new thing called building information modeling, and they created a panel to start investigating that, and it grew into a user-based conference uh, that then, a few years later, started reaching out to other professional organizations. So eventually, the American Institute of Architects uh, became a sponsoring member. The uh, American Institute of Steel Contractors became a, a member recently, and we're currently pursuing a few other major organizations to come join us. About two years ago, we reached out. Uh, we were contacted by Building Smart International to take over as the new uh, chat home of the U.S. chapter. We um, we're happy to do that. We're still learning about what that really means in terms of helping develop international open BIM standards. But um, we see ourselves, we're run by industry professionals. Our purpose is to, to serve as an incubator for innovative ideas. And we see our role as, you know, putting out practical tools for the industry to use. We're kind of trying to reconcile that with how that fits with international standards development. But right now, we see ourselves as advocate and, and, and collaborator and essentially a, a hub for integration between the, all, all parts of the industry. So we have architects, engineers, builders, owners, fabricators, suppliers, and so on, all at our table working on our, our efforts going forward. I think that's an, an incredible thing to hear. And, and the key thing, takeaway from me from that is that um, BIM Forum was started from the contractor side of the fence. Now, here in Australia... Um, and I don't know how familiar you are with the state of play here in Australia, but what is really the, the current state of the market is is that it's very designer-led and only a few major Tier 1 contractors here in Australia have actually uh, adopted BIM more so for uh, improving processes within their own businesses rather than actually a focus on clients. So that's something to be commended in terms of the contractors coming up to the plate and leading the way, and it's good to see uh, the AIA in North America uh, participating uh, because here in Australia, I'm chairing uh, an AIA and an ACA uh, BIM task force based out of Queensland and we're struggling to get AIA interest here in Australia at a national level, which is very frustrating. One of the things that I kind of liked a lot about the BIM Forum's work is in regards specifically with regards to uh, the work that, that has been done on LOD because it's so heavily specified here in Australia and heavily relied upon. And, and, and the sad thing also, which gives it a bit of bad credibility, is the fact that people uh, use terms generically across a whole model rather than looking at things at an element-based level. Can you share with us the journey that document's gone through? And, and I guess the key thing is, is that it's generally got an annual release and an annual update. So do you want to just talk through when that started and, and, and the process it's gone through? Sure. And the LOD specification is probably one of my favorite projects that I've been involved with um, through the years. And like the BIM Forum itself, it was created out of industry need, out of a practical need, and it was uh, the content itself was authored by a group of industry professionals. So just in a real quick summary of what it was, um, I think we started the LOD specification effort it was about 2010, if I can recall. Uh, it was shortly after the AIA had released the first definitions of the concept of level of development, uh, and, they, and they had five very, very simple def descriptions of what those levels were. And we felt that there was a void 
that that created where it didn't really get specific enough. So, for example, as practitioners, we didn't know when we were sitting down to start our model, you know, what does it mean? What did it mean that we had to create structural elements at LOD 300 or to generate walls and partitions at LOD 200? It was really tough for us to understand and to, to create, to connect the dots. BIM Forum saw that as an opportunity. And we said we set out to create essentially a dictionary, so that the model creators and the specifiers. So you know, if the contractors are the ones that are receiving this information, or the owners are the ones that are receiving the information, um, can sit down with this dictionary, and knowing what they want to achieve as a result, they can use this dictionary to say, oh, okay, to achieve this result, I need these modeled systems to this level and and the specification tells you you know is that intersection so it's it's broken down by systems of a building and then it tells you you know gives you an explanation of how you would achieve modeling those systems at those different levels that were originally set forth by that aia protocol it's been really rewarding work we meet uh i've since kind of I'm stepping back from the LOD spec team myself because I'm trying to get more more input, you know, a fresh a fresh set of eyes, a fresh look at the content. But throughout my tenure there, I had served as the chair of the exterior enclosures workgroup. So for each system, for each major system, we would have a group of uh, somebody from the design realm, somebody from engineering, somebody from the you know constructors world, like a general contractor, and somebody as like a subcontractor or a fabricator while collaborating on coming up with these definitions. So there's a lot of great debate going back and forth um, on every section. Like you said, every year, the, the team is still committing to refreshing it and updating it. Quite interesting, I think the most debated topics came at the fringes. So LOD 100 and LOD 500 were the yeah. most debated levels by far. For example, LOD 100, we kept debating on, well, does that mean you actually have something that's modeled or not? Or is you know, it just a spice? Yeah. Or it's just a drawing, yeah. And I don't think we've even addressed 500 yet, which is the handover zone. Yes. Um, because there's so many different interpretations of what that could be. We left that alone and essentially said that, you know, that's something for the Next client generation. or the owner <laughs> to define. Yeah, so we didn't – Penn State has some really good – they have – 520, 530, 540, 550, just, just to give you one example of how a an owner organization, you know, defines how they want data and the different ways they want data at the at that handover. It's a complex thing. And I, I, I guess I could go off the cuff with a couple of ideas and, and, and put you on the spot, which might be quite challenging, but it might be interesting to see how you go. Now sure. the one challenge that I've had with the uh, the systems based approach. And this is purely because of me being a person that's so heavily aligned uh, with the IFC schema. I know that it aligns with, now the key thing for people to understand that that aren't aware is that the BIM forum aligns with Omniclass. Uh, is it Omniclass? You mean or? LOD spec? Yeah. So it's yeah, I guess that's an important it's an important question because when we when we were first organizing the, the the first edition of the LOD spec, we we were originally not even going to use any kind of system to organize the information. We were literally just going to say walls, you know, structure, doors, yes. etc. But I, I felt, you know, if you're if you're ever going to be able to check this information to validate it, 
you have to have some kind of essentially an index. Like if you're familiar, if you're familiar at all with, with any database concepts, you know you have an index. So we decided at the time, at the early time, we used um, Uniformat. Yes, um, that's the one as a start. And in the recent versions, we were adding in the mapping of OmniClass. So actually, the latest version has Uniformat and OmniClass. And again, they're references. So literally, what in, in our in our introduction material, we say that when you're creating your model and you're creating your BIM execution plan, you know, decide on what your index is going to be, and it could be Uniformat, could be OmniClass, but you know, pick one, and then that way well, that can set up other validation systems, such as uh, Celebri or Assemble systems, to you know, say, okay, look in the model, find systems or components that have this code, and you know, check their LOD. Now that I won't get that's a whole other hour's worth of conversation <laughs> of what that <laughs> means, but that's the general concept. Yeah, I know it's important to understand that now. I guess the point where I was trying to get to is that as uh, the system has in, has developed and as the, the, the specification has developed and, and gained more and more, I guess, detail or, I guess, um, structure to it, the one thing that I struggle with the most is specifically in and around doors and windows and the expectation at uh, LOD of 350 where if an architect was to provide a door, that they'd also then uh, include jams and lintels, from which I envisage that role and responsibility of producing those modelled elements would fall not with the architect but with the structural engineer. I hypothesise this concept for you, and it might be something that might be evil, or or it'd be interesting to see whether this has already been debated as part of as part of the committee that have been oh. putting this together. Is the concept of classifying or um, having an LOD-based specification based upon the IFC schema, therefore kind of going down to an element level rather than a system. Has that ever been debated? Yeah, I, I, I think that, I think, that, I think I, if I can unpack that question, there might be two separate subjects in there. <clears throat> One is we, we are definitely considering IFC schema as we're going through the iterations of the LOD spec. Admittedly, the early versions were more uh, from a, I'll call it a human interaction level which so this is very was literally important. we were thinking yeah we were thinking about the you know the user sitting at their computer using revit or archicad or vectorworks and then saying you know how would i go about you know i have a bim execution plan how do i go about doing that in my work now we're we, we recognize that you know aligning this with the ifc schema is a very important part of this to make it more computable and verifiable in the future so we are working on that i think the second part of your your question there had to do with how you interpret and use the, the spec itself. Um, and what I mean by that is the specification doesn't tell you who is responsible for doing which parts. So in your example of here's a door and in, at some levels it, it, it says that you will provide you know headers and lintels uh, and jams. The whole point of that is just saying that at a certain level, those elements or sub-elements are to be modeled. Yes. It does not say who is responsible for doing that. That the way I, the, the analogy I like to use is going back to a dictionary. The dictionary itself does not tell the author how to create a novel. It does not tell the reader, you know, the emotions they're going to feel after reading the author's novel. It's just a tool that you know the author can use when they they have an idea for a story and they they want to choose which words to assemble. It doesn't tell the author how, in which order to assemble and which words to use. 
And then when the reader gets a, gets a novel, you know, they, they see some words and they might not be sure what those words mean. They go back to the same dictionary that the author used and they can say, ah, okay, you know, this, this is what that means. So hopefully that, that helps a little bit. That's helped me, you know, understand what the purpose of the LOD spec is as we've developed it. I uh, think that's a very eloquent uh, response, James. And I think the key thing would be then that in understanding that, the people that are listening uh, recognize that each element may have multiple uh, model element authors and that they need to make allowances for that in their BIM uh, execution plan in response to clients' information requirements. So if a client requires things to be modeled to a certain level under the BIM forum LOD specification, that consideration then gets made as to who is the appropriate author for those specific sub-elements. With regards to the strategies uh, being put in place for the future of the specification, obviously you, you've half answered me in some ways in suggesting that that the specification will consider IFC moving forward and that'll actually then make the document, I think, even a more universally responsive document then because of the different classification systems that we highlighted and that different countries use, which then is a, is a great thing for the document in terms of it being a uh, in an industry supported document are there uh, objectives as part of the bim forum lod system uh, for covering existing elements at all because one of the things that i did talk to marts here about in a previous podcast was about how an lod specification is very good during the design and construction phases of a project but as soon as the project is complete and the project is handed over to a client essentially it becomes more important uh, what is it in the model and the actual level of accuracy and reliability? So is there is there a view with that at all? Uh, I, I believe, um, so I think when, you, when you're referring existing elements, I think there's, there's two bookends to that statement. One is when you're, you know, if you're addressing, uh, let's say, a renovation of an existing facility. Yep. And I think it sounds like you might also be talking about at the end, of, you know, talking about like as built, you know, at, at the end of, a design phase. Yeah, or, or, um, so I'll, or the, I'll address the first one first. Yeah, that's hopefully the easier one. Then it could be the the future play of what LOD five hundred becomes, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. So let me let me talk about the you know existing building conditions uh, in terms of like a renovation. So BIMform has has partnered with a group called the U.S. Institute of Building Documentation, the U.S. IBD. Uh, they have developed a system called LOA, Level of Accuracy, that is specifically addressing the measurement and scanning, laser scanning of existing facilities. We, we consider that's their domain, and we reference it, in the, I think, in the in introduction to the LOD spec. We try not to confuse issues if somebody else is already addressing existing conditions and, and measurement and accuracy of creating models that are based on measurements of existing facilities. That's where the USIBD's guidelines come into play. The other end of the spectrum, the, the you know, how do you, let's say you're doing a new building using the LOD spec and how do you address the, you know, reconciling it with the actual as-built conditions? Um, and that's where I mentioned before, there are many different interpretations of what this means. Uh, we're actually going through a bit of this right now internally at HOK and making sure that we're having more strict definitions around the terms record modeling and as-built modeling or record documents and as-built documents. Historically speaking, the, those two terms have been interchangeable. 
in contracts, but now it's becoming more clear that record documents or record modeling is literally just taking the design and engineering models and updating them only with respect to, you know, anything that has come through through the construction phase um, contractual modification process. Yeah, so changes and stuff. Exactly. The, typically, the design teams don't, you know, if, if, if a contractor installs a pipe and they installed it, you know, half a foot off of where it was supposed to be, we don't go in our model and update the exact location of that pipe. Um, however, if, if um, a, a large piece of equipment that we designed as maybe one manufacturer and it was, you know, installed as, you know, it was substituted for a completely different manufacturer that's a completely different size, you know, we, we may, through that contract modification process, go and update our model to show that different piece of equipment in the design model. And that all has to do with what the client wants as part of their data deliverable. Like I said, we do, we've done a couple of major projects with Penn State, the authors of their own uh, industry BIM standards, and they have several different levels of 500. So I think they're lower levels of 500. So for example, like 520 might mean maintaining the design model, you know, with those, those record changes. If you're, you know, the contractor is responsible for issuing like a 560, which is the fabrication models that are updated you know, with the correct locations of all the all the elements. So two different deliverables, and they understand that, but they don't expect the design team to create those models to a level of as-built modeling or documentation. I think that's an interesting use of, use of terminology, and maybe it's something we should just steal here in Australia based upon the amount of uh, contracts research you said you've done over the last 10 years. Moving on from BIM Forum. I think one one extra thing that I'll add on there about the future of the specification that might be really interesting for your local listeners is that we're starting to address landscaping development with some collaborators from Australia. So that should be coming, I think, in the next annual edition of the LOD spec. So cheers for that collaboration. It must um, include uh, allowances for kangaroos and koalas, maybe in your specification. Um, yeah, I'll keep my eyes open for that. <laughs> watch out! Watch out for that secret hidden uh, line in the specification. Now, with the BIM standard being uh, the NBIMS US in North America, and the current version is number version number three. What is the adoption like of the standard across industry in North America? Is it is it widely adopted? Well, this is this is a really interesting topic because, and again, it probably we could go off on a tangent for quite a while. But I was actually involved with the development of version two of the National BIM standard in the U.S. Um, I was the design group chair, and I think you really have to ask the question: like, what is NBIMS beyond the title? Uh, in my opinion, it's really just a, t- a title in nature. And if you if you look back at the brief history of how that document came about, the previous uh, home of the U.S. chapter of Building Smart was with the National Institute of Building Sciences, which is a government-based group. They created this national BIM standard as their, their original intent was it to be a vehicle to propose draft information exchange standards that would then be transmitted to Building Smart International. So that's why you see you saw the things like the birth of Kobe came through the national BIM standard. But there are a lot of other information exchange proposals in the National BIM Standard that never were adopted by the international level, nor were they adopted in any kind of software. 
Yeah. So it's very much a exchange-based or a standards-based document. It's not really practical nature for, for users to adopt. So I would say in my experience, my professional experience, I haven't seen any projects that have required use of NVIMS. And quite frankly, if that came through, I wouldn't know how we would be able to comply with it. So that said, that's the bad news. The good news is we are working with uh, we're coming back and working with NIBS. Their, their, their group, the Building Smart Alliance, is still existing. Yep. Um, and actually, the chair of that, that group right now is John Messner, who is uh, still at Penn State. Uh, he was one of, the help, uh, one of the original authors of the Penn State BIM guidelines. Um, so we're collaborating with them on creating a new national BIM standard and making it kind of stripping it down and thinking about what the practical nature of it could be so that it's more usable throughout the, uh, the U S industry. One of the things I've found that's quite uh, challenging with this, the suite of uh, documents that comes from that standard is that it's, it's very kind of broad and, and doesn't really get to the point in my view. And I guess that's a challenge. I guess that's a reason why it's probably, um, you know, not not adopted as 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 a way about going things because it's it's a, it's a kind of yeah. a series of bite sized chunks of information rather than a kind of overarching overall way of delivering something. Yeah, I mean, when when I got first, when I first was involved in in the version two draft, I read through the existing content and I said, you know what, this and it was and it was several hundred pages at the time. I think version three is now up to a few thousand pages <laughs> of information. But at the time, I said, listen, you know. This could be boiled down to, you know, someone could come down off off the mountain with a couple of stone tablets that that say, "Thou shalt use IFC, BCF, and Kobe," and we're done. <laughs> like, why we don't need? So, I think that's an important part of it going forward. But I think it has to have more practical applications. You know, in version two, we started to introduce this notion of practice guidelines, which is how you got the LOD spec and the yeah. Penn State uh, project execution planning guidelines embedded into it. But again, it's not really clear on how those things are mandated in what you'd call, quote unquote, a standard. So it's, it's a good as a, you know, maybe best practices yeah. as a reference, but it's a far cry from what, what would be known as something like a true standard operating procedure. One of the things that I think that's probably most important to take away from that standard, which you just touched on before with regards to Kobe. Now, Kobe was developed by Dr. Bill East for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers a number of years ago. For those that aren't aware of this, I guess his title, I guess it's a standard schema for the delivery of information throughout the design and construction phases. And it's focused at being a format for handing over information at the completion of projects for use with uh, CAFM systems. This standard being one of the most major standards uh, developed out of uh, USA. James, is there a high level of adoption of Kobe by asset owners in North America? I'll answer that in, in, in kind of two different ways. One is looking at my professional experience to date yep. through involvement at HOK and my involvement at, at BIMFORM with industry experts. We really don't see that much of a requirement for Kobe in, in North America. And I think that's just across the board. It's not that there aren't there aren't there are other standards. I think just in general, we see very very few projects where the client has rigorous information delivery requirements. And I, I think that's part of the problem. We we, we have this saying uh, internally here, where the efforts that we're doing from the technology side within a design firm are kind of like pushing on a rope, where <laughs> you know no. you really you, you can't 
get that much, you know, we can only do so much. We have to have somebody on the other end pulling it and creating some tension to, to, to move the, the effort forward. Yep. We, the, the people that are doing it are usually, you know, we have them presenting at BIMform conferences and they're passionate about it and it works. But the people that aren't, that really don't have an information handover strategy, you know, it's just not there yet. And it's just looking at the numbers. You know, we at HOK, we do, I think, upwards of about 3,000 projects worldwide every year. And the number of projects where we have client-based BIM or information delivery requirements are, I think, below 40 total. So that's um, that's a very interesting that's a very interesting kind of uh, take on the market really when you look at it isn't it because um, having a good broad scope of that you're talking about the likes of uh, you know what is it one point three percent yeah which is pretty and, pretty and low to be clear yeah the, there's absolutely nothing wrong with Kobe and I think the standard is well thought out and the schema works uh, I think it's just really a question of having our Facility owners, facility managers, understanding and embracing that, and and getting involved with our the design and the delivery of their projects. Too often, I see you know they just want the building built, and they're they they may have facility management personnel that have systems, but too often they are not at the table uh, in terms of like capital improvement or development. So it, it's a little, I think it's a little bit of a disconnect. Uh, I think it's there. I think they just are, the owner community has to get the right people at the table and having these conversations with what we can provide and deliver. So then they get more value out of their asset, and I guess it's just about an awareness program, probably where they can see that there is value in that. Getting to the point where you've now kind of covered the fact that the the adoption rate is so low, if we take a look at it from an international level rather than just a, a national level within within North America, obviously you. You being a standards man, you might be aware of it, or you might have spent some time reading it. I don't know yet, but you know, obviously, with the recent release of ISO nineteen six fifty, do you see any movement in industry in North America actually to um, adopt this standard in terms of the process and of delivery of projects, or is it something where it's kind of out of sight and out of mind still? I, I'd like to say uh, the movement is being generated by me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the standards man. I, 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 I am really excited about 19650 and not just being a standards nerd. Um, it, I think it is really amazing that this level of uh, you know BIM implementation has made its way as an ISO standard, kind of building up out of the UK's um, 1192 series. It's really, and it's valuable. I think this is one that it's not too wonky to be ignored. I kind of was rereading it again. You know, I, I obviously had a, a draft copy. I, I got my purchased my copies as soon as it came out, and I was rereading it o- over the past uh, couple of nights, uh, preparing for this uh, <laughs> this, this podcast Bombard- bombardment. Um, yeah, and you know, I think it's it's interesting because it gets you to think about planning the process, and from a, a North American perspective. Folks in North America, we are. You have to understand that that most Americans are a do first, document later type of people. We are not the type of people to, you know, when we start up a project, say, "Oh, let let's go find what what's the current standard we can apply to to what we do." We just do, <laughs> and later on, we say, huh, "You know, that that might be worth standardizing or writing a document about it." So when I read the the two nineteen six fifty parts that came out, I, I see a lot of what we're already been been doing but just not that haven't been documented. So 
in the U.S., uh, particularly through BIMform, one of the things we've done over the past couple of years is survey all of our thousands of users what they would want out of the future state of BIMform. And a vast majority of them said they wanted quote unquote standards. In the US, I don't, because standards are particularly within the design and, and construction industry, there are standards like finish standards and you know safety standards, but procedural standards are something I think that are pretty foreign to most Americans, at least in, in the, the AEC industry. When, when we hear this word standards, and we've heard this from even HRK clients too, they come to us and they say they want standards, they really want us to write them like a training manual for Revit. Yeah. To me, that's not a standard. That's just educational material. Uh, right. But people lump it as the standard tells me how to do something. 19650, I think, is valuable to just create a framework around you know, planning your project, setting forth uh, information requirements. What do you do about, you know, the, the simple process of checking that you've met those information requirements? It has the notion of level of development. They call it level of information need. Nice. I really don't like the acronym LOIN. <laughs> that's what they've chosen. But I think it's something that as the, the U.S.-based group is pushing, driving forward to potentially creating a new standard or a new version of this national BIM standard, I, I'm pushing to say, hey, you know, there, there's an international one that already exists. You know, we can start from that. And I, I, I think I'm gaining some, some traction in that idea. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that we'll have some success in just pointing to the great work that's already been established in ISO 19650 and then building upon that, maybe even having a U.S. derivative of that. Yeah, it'd be good to see, uh, similar to what we're hoping to have here in Australia, an, an annex, I guess, or North American annex. And then, you know, one of the things that I have noticed here in Australia, and I'm currently uh, in the process of analysing the results of a digital capability of Australian architects uh, for the AIA and ACA, which hopefully that report will have released in the next month or so. But it was very interesting to see the results from that uh, with regards to the expectations or the expectations of clients on the delivery of projects using BIM and for FM and the percentage uh, results from the survey uh, respondents actually sat the FM level at about 3%. Here in Australia we have the same scenario uh, where we actually don't really have any standards in place currently. So when you're talking about the uh, the way in which uh, Americans go about their business, I think that's possibly the same here in Australia, where it's, you know, uh, try it first, and then if it works, we'll we'll write a we'll write a methodology on how to do it. So, it's good to see the similarities in the in the sense of how North America is currently in its position moving forward. The sta this standard might actually be the, the 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 launch pad for more adoption of those processes in the future. Actually, increase uh, economies and and hopefully see productivity increase. So, James, mate, thanks yeah. very much for taking the time to talk to us today. And, and I know you have a busy schedule, but um, hopefully uh, our listeners today um, will have taken a lot from you in terms of understanding, uh, first of all, you know, the, the work that's been done by BIM Forum. And, and I guess the key takeaway from that is understanding the methodology behind how that works, and that might actually fix some of the, the misconceptions that people have here in Australia. Now, I have one final question for you that I ask every one of my guests. What does BIM mean to you? BIM, for sure, I, I define it as a process, not a tool. Yep. That's right off the bat. That's what I would say. I like to think of it as better interaction methods as, a, as an alternate to the acronym. 
um, because I think quite quite often the term BIM is too uh, is equated with software. Yep. They say, you know, where's your BIM model? <laughs> you know, and it's, well, is it a coordination model? Is it a Revit model? Is it an ARCHICAD model? And really, we have to transcend that those those misconceptions. And you know, it's how our inter- industry was meant to work. We we you know we build things in three dimensions. We work and live in the three dimensional world. Why why don't we design that way? Um, so I think it's the tools themselves have a long way to go, but, but I truly believe that we're on the right path um, to improving our delivery methods and the results from from these efforts. So I, I'm optimistic about our future. That's the most unique um, new acronym I've heard, but it, it it's amazing how we can take so many um, different words from BIM to actually uh, give it great meaning. James, thanks very much for your time. And uh, for more information on James, on HOK and on BIM Forum, please head to our website and find links to the various pages and documents that we've discussed and you can have some more further reading. So I look forward to sharing our next podcast in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition. If you would like assistance with your digital transition, please contact us at digital at fultontrotter.com.au For more information, or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. We would also appreciate it if you provide us with a rating and take the time to provide us with a review. Thanks for listening to The Digital Transition, brought to you by Fulton Trotter Digital. Digital transition.